0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe.
1: It's time for Sorallo Sports Talk with Joe
0: Sorallo.
2: Here we go, episode 47 of the show. I cannot wait. Josh Booty, not only my good friend, but of course, former LSU quarterback, former NFL quarterback, and hey, for you two sport athletes out there, former first round draft pick of the Florida Marlins in the MLB, he'll be joining the show shortly. We're going to talk about the college football coaching carousel. Of course, his LSU Tigers, just naming Brian Kelly, their new head coach of their football program. We'll get into whether or not that's a good hire. Or if that's just a big name and maybe Brian Kelly doesn't fit the LSU culture the same way a guy like Coach O did. We'll dive into that. We'll dive into Josh having a front row seat to last Saturday's SEC Championship game. Of course, Alabama's demolition of then the top-ranked Georgia Bulldogs. I can't wait to have him on. Always a blast when I get to hang out with Josh, talk some football, talk some baseball. No baseball today. We're going to stick strictly to football, uh, predominantly college football. But I'll dive into that with him after I dive into Monday Night Football in my monologue. That's right, the New England Patriots and the Buffalo Bills are coming off a Monday Night Football game that is probably unlike anything you have ever seen at the NFL ranks. I mean, this game looked more like the upcoming annual Army-Navy football game than it did a professional football game between two teams that were going into that game vying for the top seed in the AFC. Uh, The New England Patriots, 14-10, they come out of this thing victorious, having only thrown three passes, the fewest amount of passes thrown in a victory since the 1970s. And Mac Jones, you know, people are walking away from that Monday night game, and the narrative on Mac Jones still seems to be so split, and even after that game, people still seem to be saying, one of two things about him. They're either commending him for his quarterback play and being selfless and a great leader and by far the best rookie quarterback in this class, or they're saying that Mac Jones is a non-talent who New England didn't win that game because of, but rather in spite of. And I want to use some time here in my monologue to say, why can't we live in the middle of those two statements, right? I mean, maybe this isn't the popular hot take everyone's looking for, but look, with Mac Jones, can we just call it like it is, there is a reason he was the fifth quarterback drafted in this past year's NFL draft. And I was not a Mac Jones believer. I, to an extent, am still not fully a Mac Jones believer because I am a Bill Belichick, Josh McDaniels, Patriots way believer. Because everything that they touch turns to absolute gold. So let's slow the roll a bit on Mac Jones being the best quarterback in this draft class. There's a reason he was drafted fifth. Because pure talent-wise, he is not as talented as Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson. And Zach Wilson's a tricky one because I'm not a big Zach Wilson fan either. Look, he's got a much stronger arm than Mac Jones. He's much more mobile. He's got that knack for the big play that Mac Jones doesn't really have. I think Mac Jones is a more consistent quarterback than Wilson. But just pure talent and flashiness, if you will, Wilson's ahead of him. And then look, I still believe that Trey Lance and Justin Fields, from a pure talent perspective far surpass anything that Mac Jones brings to the table. Now, Mac Jones, with that said, is out of all those quarterbacks that were taken ahead of him, all four of them, probably the best fit in New England because like he showed on Monday night against Buffalo, he is by far the best game manager. And maybe that can change with maturity, with time. You know, guys like Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields, I still believe will be the best quarterbacks from this draft class but Mac Jones has proven that he was the most ready to take over a New England Patriot team that is not only trying to compete for a playoff spot, but shocking us all and trying to win the damn Super Bowl this year. And Mac Jones doesn't have to air out 60 yard passes or run for a hundred yards in order to make it to the playoffs or even contend for a Super Bowl. Mac Jones just has to play mistake-free football. And to this point, he's done that. Look, there's no doubt in my mind that Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields would have thrown the ball more than three times last night, right? They've got the arm strength. Like you saw from Josh Allen, he threw over 20 passes because even in those extreme conditions, Josh Allen has one of the strongest arms of all NFL quarterbacks and he was able to still zip some tight spirals into windows despite 50 mile per hour winds and snow and sideways elements. Josh Allen has talent that Mac Jones will probably never even sniff. But Mac Jones, to his credit, as approximately a 22-year-old, because speaking as a 23-year-old, this can be a tough thing to do, Mac Jones was able to check his ego at the door, stick to not his preferred game plan, but Bill Belichick's game plan, and do what he was told, and be a great game manager. That's what he was, right? Two of three, out-of-the-box score, 19 passing yards. That's pathetic. uh, You know, you could argue, and I will make this argument, Anyone could have played quarterback and New England would have had the same exact outcome that they did last night, winning that game 14-10, right? They could have done that with me at quarterback. But what they might not have been able to do with a different quarterback is successfully follow the game plan that Bill Belichick drew up because of those elements. And other guys deserve credit too. You know, the wideouts deserve credit for not being selfish, for going out there and blocking their asses off every play right? That was as, as close to a true team win as you can find in the NFL. And football's different. You know, every win in football is a team win. But to have a quarterback go out there and throw for 19 yards, throw only three passing attempts, and for you to win a game in the NFL, that's unheard of. And that's because everyone, you hear the, the Bill Belichick do your job mantra, right? Everyone on the Patriots did their job to go into Orchard Park in those conditions and walk away not only victorious but nine and four, good for the overall top seed in the AFC. I mean, check that one off your bingo card, right? Who the hell had the Patriots as the top seed in the AFC after week 13? I think we can all agree the answer to that is nobody. So give Mac Jones credit where it's due, right? He checked his ego because there's no doubt in my mind that guys who are far more talented, guys like Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, And this isn't a knock on their character at all. I think that they both have tremendous character, Fields especially. But I think they would have wanted to rely on their talent and be playmakers. I think that they would have pushed against only throwing three passes a little bit in a scenario like last night's. Whereas Mac Jones, he did the assignment. He knew what he had to do, and he got it done. And the New England Patriots were rewarded, like I said, with a win and with the top seed in the AFC as a result. So give Jones credit where it's due. I'm not going to knock him. Like I said, talent-wise, I think he is the fifth most talented quarterback in this class. And you can take it as you will. I think it's a great quarterback class. I think Mac Jones will have a great career. I don't think his talent compares to guys like Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields. So let's slow the roll there a little bit because we also need to recognize that the Patriots are not winning because of Mac Jones's supreme talent, right? And that's that's where I want to make the opposite argument to the Mac Jones case. He is not the reason the Patriots are 9-4. and four, Or rather, his arm and his talent, those are not the reasons the Pats are 9-4. and four. It's because he's sticking to the damn game plan every week. It's because he's got a great offensive line, something that Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence, frankly, do not have. It's because he's got a great run game, something that, you know, the Bears have a decent run game. The Jags, the Jags have a great running back in James Robinson, but apparently Urban Meyer doesn't know how the hell to use him, so they don't have much of a run game. Because Robinson's a great talent, and he can go elsewhere. I mean, God, if James Robinson was was on this Patriots team, he'd be their top running back, and I think he'd be going for 100 yards every week. And part of that's the offensive line, part of that's the game plan. But Mac Jones is nowhere near as talented as Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields. Mac Jones just has way better coaching. I mean, Matt Nagy, the fact that he's still employed over in Chicago is shocking and a disservice to... Chicago Bears fans and National Football League fans everywhere. Urban Meyer, I still don't think he knows his ass from his elbow at the NFL level. I think that he's overmatched, frankly, at the NFL level, which is just true for some guys. Some guys can't do it in the NFL. They can be the best college coaches ever. They cannot do it at the pro ranks, and I think Urban Meyer is one of those guys. So Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields, far more talented than Mac Jones, but Because of the situations they fell to, you know, Mac Jones, part of being the last quarterback taken in the first round, means he was drafted to the best team out of those teams drafting a quarterback in the first round. And I know that the Bears traded up. Technically, they had a better season than the Pats. The Bears were still not a good team last year. They snuck into the back end of the playoff picture. They didn't deserve to be in it. They only got in, I believe they were the seventh seed. I believe they only got into the playoffs because of the expanded playoff spot. So I'm not going to say that the Bears last year were better than the Patriots uh, just because they snuck in with the seven seed in the NFC playoff picture. You know, Mac Jones was drafted of all the first round quarterbacks by the team that was most ready to win now. And that's what they're doing. They're winning now. The Jaguars, eons away from winning. The Bears, they need a new O-line. They need some receivers to compliment Allen Robinson. And they need an entirely brand new coaching staff. The Bears are probably not going to be able to talk about winning don't forget, they don't have a first round pick next year because that was the price they had to pay to get Justin Fields. They probably won't be able to be competitive with Fields until 2023. So Mac Jones, while he's doing his job right, and I want to give him credit where it's due for that and for being the game manager he needs to be, he also by far fell into the best situation of any of these quarterbacks taken in the first round. And maybe, maybe that's different. Next year, we'll see with Trey Lance in San Francisco. I think the 49ers have a very talented roster, more weapons on offense than Mac Jones and the Patriots have. So maybe Lance, when he's able to be a starter after Jimmy G is gone at the end of this season, maybe Lance will will wow us next year and make a playoff run with the 49ers. But Fields, Lawrence, and definitely Zach Wilson, because of the environment around them, because of the weapons around them, the coaching around them, those guys are all still a long ways away from winning. And that doesn't have to do with their individual talent. Now, I do want to flip and talk about the Buffalo Bills for a little bit, because you all know I love the Buffalo Bills, right? Went to college in the shadow of Buffalo. And when I say shadow, it's a loose interpretation of the term, right? I went to school about an hour and a half outside of Buffalo, but up there, I mean, the, near, the closest thing to do was <laughs> go to a freaking Bills game. Love the Bills, have become very close friends with very many Bills fans, Outside of the Giants, who have given me nothing to cheer for since 2012, the Bills are my second team. And I want to see the Bills succeed. Which makes it infuriating to me that with this roster they've assembled in Buffalo, and with what I perceive to be an incredible coaching staff leading the way for that roster, why the Bills can't get out of their own damn way this season. I mean, this is a team that was once 5-2, and that you could argue should have been six and one. Josh Allen, of course, you know, I talked about it with Lorenzo Alexander the day after that Monday night game with the Bills and Titans. Allen missed that first down to give him, you know, a first and goal by an inch. Went to QB sneak it. Jeff Simmons, big man, made the big play, stopped him. I mean, that right there was the difference between the Bills being six and one and five and two. Then to go on top of that, after they beat Miami, they get right they lose to Jacksonville 9-6 in a game where all Buffalo had to do was score one touchdown, and the Bills could have just as easily been 7-1 as they were 5-3. But no, instead, following a 5-2 start, the Buffalo Bills are now 7-5, good for just 2-3 in their last five football games, including a loss to Jacksonville in there. They're in second place in the AFC East that everyone... Predicted them to absolutely run away with. And they own the seventh and final spot in what's going to be a wildly competitive AFC playoff picture down the stretch here. The Buffalo Bills are in trouble. And they need to realize that. Josh Allen has had a very good season, but he's not playing like the MVP candidate he was a year ago. He has absolutely no running game to work with. The Bills are frankly, soft in the trenches on each side of the ball. The offensive line is not performing the way they did last year. The defensive line, I mean, you saw them against the Patriots. They knew the run was coming all night. Couldn't stop it for some reason until the fourth quarter. You knew it was happening all night. Mac Jones had one passing attempt in the first half, and the Bills could not stop the run. Their secondary, despite having, in my opinion, the best safety tandem in the league in Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer, and I apologize to my friends out in Denver, I love Justin Simmons and Kareem Jackson, but I think the Bills, mainly due to age, slightly have them beat with Poyer and Hyde, but their secondary took a huge hit, losing Trey White for the season, one of the best cornerbacks in football, so now we saw that the Bills couldn't stop the run, now they're more vulnerable against the pass, the Buffalo Bills are in trouble, this is what happens when you don't win games that you need to win. You know, they could have rebounded from that Tennessee loss. That was a hard-fought, gritty, amazing game. And they could have rebounded from it fine. But they didn't. They compounded on it by losing to Jacksonville. By getting blown out at home by Jonathan Taylor and the now surging Indianapolis Colts, a team who, by the way, that tiebreaker could come in handy if the Colts go and steal a wild-card spot, from Buffalo and maybe leave the Bills on the outside looking in. You know, the Bills are seven and five, the Colts are seven and six. So the Bills need to wake the hell up because it's not going to get any easier next week. They go to Tampa Bay to take on Tom Brady and the Bucks, who owns the Bills throughout his career more than Tom Brady. And then they have a home game against Carolina, which I mean, nothing at this point is a gimme, but you know, this team lost to Jacksonville, but that should be a gimme, a home game to Carolina. And then they go to Foxborough because as if it's not, bad enough that they lost to the Patriots, they lost to them at home. Now they have to play them again in a couple weeks and they have to go to Foxborough on December 26th to do so before a couple home matchups with the Falcons and Jets. I mean, these next three games are crucial and there's a realistic chance that the Bills, who are seven and five right now, come out of these next three games at eight and seven. And then you're in an absolutely must win mode the rest of the way and forget winning the division. If you go one and two in these next three, you're playing must-win football weeks 17 and 18 just to try to get a wild card spot at 10 and 7, which, as I mentioned with the whole Colts tiebreaker situation, 10 and 7 wouldn't even guarantee the Bills making the playoffs. So the Bills are going to have to do something here, right? You've got no run game. Your offense is completely one-dimensional. Your offensive line is completely lacking. I mean, the personnel is the same as a year ago, but the talent and the toughness, frankly, it just doesn't look like it's there. Josh Allen's getting hit, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going to look to exploit that every chance they get. And then on defense, you're missing your all-pro cornerback, and you can't stop the run. The Bills have a lot of questions and potentially a lot of problems coming up the rest of the way. I don't know what happened. The team was on its way. Like I said, 7-1 was such a realistic possibility. Instead, they're 7-5, and five. looking like the AFC East, unless they go to Foxborough and pull that one off. Looking like the AFC East is slipping away more and more every week. And the Bills are in trouble because if the AFC East slips away, the next thing that could slip away is a wild card spot. I don't know what's going on in Buffalo, but they need to right the ship and fix it right away. When I come back, Josh Booty joins the show. We're not going to talk Mac Jones, but we're going to talk Alabama football, SEC football, and the college football coaching carousel. So don't go anywhere. Stick with me, Joe Serrallo, right here on Serralo Sports Talk.
0: Don't even think about leaving. You're locked into the best sports talk out there. Here's Joe.
2: We're back here on Serralo Sports Talk and joining the show. It's one of my favorite guests, my good friend, former LSU quarterback, former NFL quarterback, and, of course, let's not forget, former MLB first-round draft pick, Josh Booty. Josh, thanks so much for joining the show.
1: Man, it's always a pleasure to be with you, man. I know uh, with football season, especially the college season, kind of winding down, the regular season, it's fun to talk about all these little moves that are happening all over the place that are actually big moves, big news, and we're getting a lot of these big-name guys you know, coaching uh, guys, these hires have just been unbelievable. And the money they're making is crazy. But I'm I'm glad we could do this show together.
2: Yeah, me too. You, you know, anytime there's big college football news, it's the perfect time to have you on. And this news, actually, a lot of it in the past week has to do not only with your conference, the SEC, but with your alma mater, with LSU, Brian Kelly, the former Notre Dame coach, leaving South Bend to join the Tigers, to lead the way for the Tigers. Gosh, I got to be honest. I didn't love this hire, so I'm curious, the LSU guy. What did you think about it?
1: Mixed feelings for sure. Um, you know, 60 year old guy. He's been around. He's, I think, he ranks third in in the nation or in the FBS uh, category and wins right now, uh, career wins. So, I mean, a, a a proven coach, a good leader, consistent leader. I think that's what LSU needed in their locker room. Uh, was that kind of consistent presence. Uh, some stability Um, you know it wasn't long ago that Orgeron won the national championship two seasons ago with Burrow but uh, I felt like the locker room was undisciplined Uh, I know a lot of people around Baton Rouge and Louisiana that that were close to the program said that you know there was a lot of issues that were arising that were kind of outside of, of the football realm of things that Orgeron didn't control properly and I like it I've known Ed since he was at Miami with Erickson. Of course, he was at USC under Pete Carroll when my brother was there. He recruited, uh, you know, my high school. My dad was a high school football coach. I've known uh, Ed for years. He recruited me and, and my brothers. And and uh, so I've always been an Ed Orgeron fan. I think he's one of the best recruiting coordinators or recruiters in college football. Um, you know, I think he's a D-line coach, though. I, I don't know if he's a head coach He. He kind of caught lightning in a bottle at LSU several years ago with the with the personnel that they had. Um, you know, he had gained Joe Burrow through the transfer portal. He had some amazing wideouts, and we had great defense. Our linebacker crew, we had three first-round linebackers on that team. Not Not many people talk about that, but, you know, I think it was just time for a change for sure. I like Brian Kelly to a certain extent. I can't wait to see what he brings to the table, to be honest with you. Uh, I know he brought his strength and conditioning coach into LSU. I think that was news this morning, uh, which, which will be good, uh, for LSU. Tommy Moffat, the long, uh, time strength and conditioning coach, they let go at LSU when Brian was hired, when Kelly was hired. So I, I knew that that's a big uh, deal in college football as your strength and conditioning coach because, uh, especially in the SEC and some of the, with the big programs, you, you have to be ready to play every week, week in, week out, and you have to have a solid foundation. And that's, you have to have talent, but you also got to be big, fast, strong, and, uh, you know, committed to uh the weight room and the working out and doing everything you can do. So the, the strength and conditioning programs are so big in college football, and people sometimes overlook that. So, you know, I guess Brian's doing some good things early, getting that guy down there from Notre Dame. He had helped transform their program uh when Kelly got there into a, a team that was perennial, you know, top 10 team, three. I think he played in a couple of college football playoff appearances, Notre Dame did. So, uh, you know, academic restrictions in Notre Dame are a lot different than LSU. (laughs) Brian Kelly ought to be able to go get some guys. If he can recruit the South and win some of these high school football coaches over, he'll do good. If he doesn't, he won't. And that's kind of the basis of it all.
2: Yeah, I will say something that scares me is those Notre Dame results against Alabama. Whenever they did get into the college football playoff, they did not fare too well against Nick Saban's squads. Now, you talk about recruiting at the end right there. You know, for that exact reason, I actually thought LSU's top target should have been someone else, Billy Napier. The Florida Gators just grabbed him out of Louisiana Lafayette. I mean, his last 3 years, they're 33 and 5, 22 and 2 his last 2 seasons just won their first Sun Belt title in his last game at the, as their head coach did you think that he would have fit the mold of LSU a little better? I mean, he is a Southern guy. He's been coaching in Louisiana for four years. He's been assistant. Uh, what did you think about him?
1: Yeah, I like Napier a lot. I thought they might, uh, you know, grab him up when Lincoln Riley decided to go to USC and and kind of nix the Tigers. I think like Lincoln was the guy that they wanted first. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, Scott Woodward, our AD at LSU. Uh, he he wanted some stability. He wanted a guy that had been there and done that. And I know Brian Kelly brings that to the table. Napier has been a been a wonderful coach. It might have been a little bit too close to home to be honest with you. Forty five minutes down the road from Baton Rouge, a guy that hadn't coached a Power Five conference as a head coach. So maybe LSU wanted to get a bigger splash higher. Uh, You know, Florida I think is lucky to get Napier because he's a great. He's going to be a great coach. I think he, he's an offensive mind, which. Uh, you know, LSU fans, uh, because we got spoiled two years ago with Joe Brady and Joe Burrow and that offense uh, with Steve Enzminger, uh as co-offensive coordinators, um, you know, I, I thought we would really go with an offensive guy, and we did. Brian Kelly is an offensive guy, but Napier fits that mold, too. He just comes from a smaller conference. So I think it maybe just a little bit too close to home, but Florida got him an awesome high up.
2: Yeah, and you know, I'm also glad that you just mentioned Joe Brady because you talk about Ed Orgering kind of catching lightning in a bottle. Remember, if he was running that uh, traditional, you know, LSU under center offense, he probably would not have won a national championship that year because the year before Joe Burrow looked very average. And it was really, in my opinion, while Coach O is a great face of a program and, you know, that go Tigers and all all that is great to watch and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> But Joe Brady was, in my opinion, the mastermind behind that championship team.
1: He was. You know, we went to the spread offense.
2: And with all the
1: weapons or all the athletes, I guess, that are uh, in the building at LSU, uh, you know, it worked out perfect. We had, a, we had a lot of senior leadership, a lot of junior leadership on that team. When you think about Jamar Chase and uh, Justin Jefferson and Terrace Marshall and Clyde Edwards-Alaire and Randy Moss's son, uh, you know, at tight end, I mean, you have a lot of probably high, high athletic ability, but also a high football IQ with those guys who had been around a lot of football and, and Joe Burrow being a fifth year senior, um, you know, being at Ohio State, backing up Haskins and being with Urban Meyer for three years and coming down there and being able to play in the SEC, uh, with you kind of a, a base of knowledge of the spread, the RPO and all that that he got from Urban Meyer was just valuable, valuable for us. And then Joe Brady kind of constructed that spread offense that, you know, he was really simple. If you look at the number of plays he did call, he just had supreme talent and they got good at what they did and they ran the football and had balance. Um, You know, we had a great offensive line too, guys like Berry, who was in the league. We watched him play last night. But, you know, it's fun to, it's fun to, you know, when LSU's playing well, it's fun to watch, especially with that kind of talent. There's only several, I would say a handful, you know, eight to 10 schools that can assemble the type of talent that LSU assembles because of the speed that comes from our state. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Florida and Alabama and Georgia and Ohio State, SC, those are some other teams that come to mind when I think about pure speed and athleticism. And then you add Joe Brady, who actually just got fired by the Panthers yesterday, I think. I think Oklahoma's trying to get him there at Oklahoma, and he'd be a wonderful hire for the Sooners because of the. Uh, you know, uh, departure of of Lincoln Riley. So it'll be fun to see where Brady ends up.
2: Yeah, I mean, they just hired Brent Venables, the Clemson D coordinator, to be their head coach. If you compare his defense with a Joe Brady offense out in Norman, Oklahoma, all of a sudden, some of those recruits that you're losing to USC right now might go, wait a minute, I want to go play for (laughs) Joe Brady. What do you think about the Lincoln Riley hire for USC? Is it a guarantee that the Trojans are finally back after years of being on the decline?
1: Yeah I think there's a few things that they need to work on in particular. I think he's going to bring a lot of uh of star power uh to the program. They've been looking for that kind of guy that uh you know I think he's coached in three college football playoffs uh so in his short career at Oklahoma. You know he can he he understands offense. They dish the ball all over the field to multiple receivers, which is a fun brand of football to watch. I think USC is going to get fired up about that, getting everybody involved uh, that can be involved, a lot like Joe Brady was at LSU. they got those types of athletes on the West Coast. They're going to be able to keep those studs like Bryce Young uh, from going to places like Alabama or DJ from ugalele to go to Clemson and making that huge jump to the South. They're going to keep a lot of that West Coast talent. It's already starting to happen. You can see it with their... Uh, recruiting season um, this year, or recruiting class this year. So it's going to be fun to see uh, what he does with all the players that he can assemble there in Southern California. They're going to start getting the talent, and then the sky's the limit. They have to stop the run. I think that's where SC's been so vulnerable in the last 10 years is the defensive line play and stopping the run. Everybody, when they play in big ball games, they get run – off the field, just up and down the field uh, through, through uh, you know, other teams' rushings, uh, uh, rushing attacks. And I think that's one thing that he's got to focus on is let's not forget that defense and defensive line. That's how you win championships. You've got to have the great offenses too, but you have to have that defensive line. That's what Alabama always has, Ohio State. Georgia is those top-tier. LSU, when they're really good, those top-tier. Auburn, you know, all the big boys is those top-tier defensive linemen, and SC's got to find those guys.
2: Yeah. And SC had them when coach O was in charge of their D line over there. So we'll see if they can revert to those old ways and dominating the Pac 12. You know, I have to be honest. I really think the Pac 12 is just pretty weak football at this point in time. I mean, you compare it to the other major conferences, the Big 10, the SEC, most specifically. And it's like, you know, Oregon, Utah, I know that they're a pair of 10 win teams, but neither of them really wow me. You know, you know, no team in the state of California in that conference really wows me. In fact, UCLA is the only one of the four going bowling this year. So I think SC can really dominate the Pac-12. I don't think it's going to be that hard to do.
1: I think so too. I think, you know, some of these Southern schools have uh, have been able to bring that talent from the West Coast down to the South, Texas, Texas A&M, uh, Oklahoma, um, you know, Alabama and, and Clemson for sure because of, uh, DJ and Bryce, uh, Young, who's gonna win the Heisman. I mean, he's a California kid, Southern California he, Those are the kids that go, should go to SC. Uh, when they're playing well, they will. And, uh, hopefully Lincoln can turn it around to where there's a marquee name on the West Coast now in USC again, like it was 10, 12 years ago when Pete Carroll was there, uh, that rival some of these teams from, uh, the South or Midwest or the, uh, you know, ACC. I just think that you're right. They ha- it has been down, uh, You know, a little bit convoluted I think SC will start to get a lot of those big recruits back into the building and then uh, they'll be able to stockpile a little bit that's what you're going to see with Lincoln
2: yeah and I think it'll be great for college football now Josh you were at the best or I don't know if the game was actually the best but the most hyped up college football game of the year the SEC championship Bama Georgia you had a front row seat to it all Man, your old coach Nick Saban—he's—he's he's one in a billion. What did you? What was your biggest takeaway from that game? Watching how Bama embarrassed the top-ranked Georgia Bulldogs, who were only allowing six point nine points per game going into that.
1: Yeah, you know when Bama gets six and a half points as underdogs, <laughs> you—that's you, your first thought—is you know how could you, you know how could how how is Bama going to get beat by seven uh, in a in a monster game like that? uh because Sabre prepares his team so well he's got uh, I think a way better uh player at the quarterback position than Georgia has and I'm like you know there's this thing could go you know Bama big or money line Bama that's the way I played it and it wasn't because Georgia's not good everybody knows that they have one of the best defenses in the country but they didn't play the, the the type of competition too leading up into that game that Bama did and Bama playing in the West, there's better teams right now in the West than there is the East. And they they have gone through a lot of battles. They battled Auburn two weeks ago where uh, their back was against the wall. Auburn always plays them tough. I mean, they played A&M and got beat. Uh, you know, that pissed them off. And they were a bunch of hornets after that game. They're, you know, Saban's not going to have a, a bad season. He might have a bad game, but it ain't a bad season. And he's going to come back and play well in big games and get them ready to go. I just think that the level of competition and what Bama's had to overcome through the years more than what Georgia has had to overcome. I mean, they beat Clemson early and they, everybody thought that was a huge win, but Clemson really wasn't the type of ball club that, uh, that they normally are, you know, and, and so it, it wasn't like they went up against a, a powerful offense in Clemson the first game of the season, uh, when Georgia had to face, uh, the Tigers. And so and I think Florida out gained them when they played Florida. They just, created some turnovers and were able to, to, to walk away with that win. But uh, I just don't think they're, they're, uh, you know, their schedule was near as hard as Bama's. And Bama showed up and, and showed out. I think that we'll probably see that game again uh, unless Michigan can clip Georgia, which will be a fun one to watch. But I think we're going to see that game again. and And now Georgia's going to work a little extra hard to get back to where they want to get to. So it should be a dandy if we get to see it again.
2: Well, so Josh, two things here then, looking at the college football playoff field. You've got Bama-Cincinnati, the one versus the four. Georgia and Michigan, the two and the three. First off, can Cincinnati compete with Bama? Right now the line is Bama minus 13.5. Can the Bearcats keep it close, keep it to a one-possession game? And then secondly, if we do get the Bama-Georgia rematch, how would you see that unfolding? Well, I
1: think Cincinnati can play them tight uh i think the line came out at 13 and a half or a couple of score a couple of touchdown uh you know difference in in uh the line but i think uh you know it depends on how if if alabama doesn't take them lightly i think alabama can win this game by several touchdowns and i think they will i think if, if alabama takes them a little lightly cincinnati's got a lot of athletes on the field they've got a great back that's healthy now they've got a couple of great receivers Alabama has been vulnerable in some games giving up a lot of points and, and especially the wide open offenses and that's what Cincinnati has so saving them got their work cut out for them for sure they don't want to they don't want to lose a, an embarrassing loss to Cincinnati because they're they're favored by a couple of touchdowns I, I think it just depends if if they come in ready to play uh, with their game face on it's going to be very very hard to beat saving coach you know Alabama team with all the talent when you when you really probably look at the four- and five-star recruits across the board, Alabama's going to have you know, 20 more of those four- and five-stars. So how could you say that they weren't, aren't going to beat Cincinnati if they come with their A game?
2: Yeah, I, I absolutely. And I didn't see anything out of Georgia last weekend that could show me that they could stop them if it's a rematch. You know, I hate to do it for the same reason I hate to pick the Patriots every year, or at least why I did hate it when it was Belichick and Brady, but it just doesn't seem like anyone can stop them.
1: Yeah, they're they're super potent on on offense. Uh, when they get that tight end involved um, at Alabama too, and and now with the receivers, you know, Meatsy three got hurt and he's out, so that's yeah. going to hurt them a little bit. They're going to have to have some other guys step up, but they always have those guys. And it was like last year with Jalen Waddle going out. Uh, you know, at the end of the year against I think it was Tennessee, uh, you know, they didn't they didn't break stride, and that's one thing that Bama can do uh and overcome that a lot of the other schools can't overcome is because they're deaf. And those that's because Saban was out is out recruiting. Yesterday Saban was in, in my hometown recruiting a high school kid uh and it was all over the you know social media because of the people I follow back in my hometown, Shreveport, Louisiana. But he just, you know, he won a big game. He's already back on the road recruiting. He never stops. He doesn't settle for, for anything less than than trying to be as good as he possibly can day in, day out. And that's why I think that they're not going to take this lightly. They can go win another championship. They smell it now. Uh, With that big win at Georgia, they got to take care of business, and they should.
2: Absolutely. Josh, before I let you go, there's one last thing I want to get to. You can see uh, I'm repping the uh, the Booty Brothers merchandise right here. Love it, love it. Tell us a little bit about Bula. Obviously, it's this great social challenge app that you and your brother Jack are working on at the moment. Um, Do we have a date for its uh, full launch in mind? Tell us a little bit more about the app.
1: Yeah, we're trying to build up the native app right now. We're hoping that we can be ready for late February, early March. We're doing a lot of internal testing right now. Uh, It's a lot bigger undertaking than we ever thought it was going to be. To be honest with you, I've raised a ton of money. We've now raised over, I think, $1.2 million. So we're, we're working hard to get this thing ready to go uh to be able to showcase this thing the way we want. It's a social challenge app, the first of its kind where we can where you can memorialize a dare wager challenge in ten or fifteen seconds with your friends and you can see it on uh you know in a social setting, social environment and uh you're one of our best brand ambassadors man. (laughs) We love having you a part of the team and uh you know we're gonna do a lot of events once this thing does launch. I think next football season is gonna be humongous for us. And like I said, we've uh, we've been working hard for a long time now, over a year building this thing up to where we want it to be. And, uh, you know, I'm a sports guy, not a tech guy, but we got great tech team now that uh, is taking care of business.
2: Well, there you go. I mean, you've got Jack in charge of the tech team and you've got the connections to really help this thing take off. So it's, it's a great tag team, you and your brother, man. I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes.
1: Thanks, man. Yeah. Jack's doing a wonderful job. My youngest brother. And we're excited. So thanks for asking.
2: Absolutely. Former LSU quarterback Josh Booty. Josh, can't wait to see how bowl season unravels and how the playoff unravels for the SEC. Thanks for joining the show, man.
1: Thanks, man. Have a great day.
0: Don't change that channel. It's time for Joe's
1: final word here on Soralo Sports Talk.
2: It is time for my final word right here on this episode, episode 47 of Soralo Sports Talk. As always... What a great spot right there with my guy Josh Booty. I mean, look, it doesn't really, for me at least, get more fun than having Josh on the podcast every time he's on. It's just a wealth of knowledge, especially if we're talking college football, NFL too. I mean, you know, we talked at length last year about the Browns breaking their their playoff list streak, because of course Josh probably spent the bulk of his time in the NFL with the Cleveland Browns. But anytime I get to talk football, baseball, anything with Josh Booty and his family, I mean, it's just always a blast. I do want to stick with the college football coaching carousel for my final word because I want to focus on one school that, in my opinion, absolutely nailed their hire and did so from within. It is the now likable Notre Dame Fighting Irish. Out of all of the hires that have been made, I mean, look, USC, I think that that was the best hire available from an external uh, candidate in bringing in Lincoln Riley to get that program back on track. I love what Florida did in grabbing Billy Napier. I thought he was the guy LSU should have targeted. You all know by now, I am not a Brian Kelly fan. I think Brian Kelly is an opportunist. I do not believe that Brian Kelly genuinely cares about the young men on his team. I believe that Brian Kelly is viewing LSU as a stepping stone to maybe a better opportunity, whether that be within the SEC, maybe if Saban finally retires in the next five years, or maybe an NFL gig. I just don't trust Brian Kelly's intentions. But the school that Brian Kelly is leaving, I think, is the biggest winner of any school, certainly to lose their head coach throughout this process. Notre Dame hiring Marcus Freeman, their one-year defensive coordinator, of course a former stud D-back for the Fighting Irish, I think that that is the best hire of this entire cycle. I think Marcus Freeman, you heard me say about a minute ago, the now likable Notre Dame Fighting Irish, I think that Marcus Freeman finally makes Notre Dame a team that everyone can root for, unless, you know, you're a Michigan fan or a USC fan or a Stanford fan and you have to endure their wrath every year. Bringing Marcus Freeman into South Bend, or rather keeping him in South Bend, but giving him full control of this team is such a breath of fresh air for a program that seems to have been run in the same old-fashioned way for decades, and as a result, really, you know, I know that they've got a couple college football playoff appearances under their belt, but they haven't been able to compete with Alabama, whether it was when they got shut out in the BCS National Championship game almost a decade ago, or getting blown out in, I believe, both of their college football playoff appearances, Marcus Freeman can change up the culture in South Bend and make Notre Dame not only a great team, which they have been under Brian Kelly, right? Not going to dispute the fact that they've been successful, but he can make them more exciting. I think Marcus Freeman can make them a more progressive team in the sense of keeping up with Alabama and Clemson and LSU from a few years ago with that completely 2020 offense that Joe Brady and company was running down there, right? Marcus Freeman won't be afraid to make that jump and say, hey, the game is changing. Let's keep up with it. Because going 11-1 and and then getting blown out by Oklahoma or Alabama in the first round of the college football playoff is just not good enough for our program. Marcus Freeman is such a breath of fresh air out in South Bend. I mean, first of all, you know, being a black or minority head coach, I should say, because he's half black, half Korean, but being a black head coach at Notre Dame, I think is going to help him when it comes to recruiting. I think he's going to be able to connect with his players in a way that a guy like Brian Kelly could frankly never do. I mean, Kelly just does not have a good reputation in terms of telling young men that he cares about them and he's not going anywhere and then jumping ship, right? He did it with Cincinnati to go to Notre Dame. And I think a lot of people- Cut him a break there because that's an understandable jump. But look at what Luke Fickle's doing now with Cincinnati. I mean, I do not genuinely believe Brian Kelly, if he had stayed at Cincinnati, would have led the Bearcats to be the first group of five team in the college football playoff. Luke Fickle's doing it because Luke Fickle gives a shit. And that's why I love Luke Fickle. I think Marcus Freeman is going to be a better recruiter than Brian Kelly. I think his players are going to respond to him and take to him and trust him more than they ever could with Brian Kelly. I think keeping Tommy Reese there is a huge win for Freeman, for the players, for the alum, for all Notre Dame fans. I mean, Tommy Reese is a Notre Dame lifer, right? If you saw that clip of him talking to the players after Brian Kelly left, he said, I'm not going anywhere. And I'm sure he wanted to be the head coach. You know, he was their quarterback, has been their offensive coordinator for a few years now. I'm sure he wanted to be the head coach. But I think Freeman is the right guy to be the head coach. And Tommy Reese running that offense is going to lead to a lot of success and a lot of great positive things for Notre Dame in years to come. You know, Freeman talked about in his introductory press conference, being the son of a black Air Force veteran and a Korean immigrant mother. I mean, when has Notre Dame ever had that diverse of a face be in any position to be the face of anything Notre Dame, let alone their football program? I think this is a huge win for the Irish. I think they've gone from a team that personally I always root against to now one that I'm looking forward to rooting for. I can't wait to see the Fiesta Bowl and the way that Freeman gets his guys ready to play Oklahoma State after an 11-1 season. I cannot wait for years to come. Hey, let's take a look at next season because you could argue that one of the downfalls to college football scheduling as a whole and especially the Notre Dame job where you don't have a conference, so you have to schedule all 12 of your games, not just three or four non-conference games. One of the downfalls is that scheduling in college football, for the insane reason that is money and television rights, has to be done decades in advance, it seems. And that's not an exaggeration. Notre Dame has a majority of their games scheduled, at least seven games scheduled every year between now and 2033. At least seven games a year have already been scheduled for the next 11 seasons. That's awful. That's t- I, I absolutely hate that because you don't know which programs are going to be relevant and which programs are going to fall off and stink in 10 years. I mean, 10 years ago, if you had said, yeah, we're playing USC in 2020, that sounds like a great game. Well, USC has stunk for the past few seasons. So that could be a downfall. But next year, look at Notre Dame's 2022 schedule. Three things are going to pop off the sheet at you. Opening day, They head to Columbus, unless it's a neutral site game, that I would have to double check. But opening day, it says they're at Ohio State. That is going to be an incredible game. Ohio State, just like Notre Dame, just missed the playoff. Notre Dame finished the year ranked fifth. Ohio State finished ranked sixth. They're both teams that are going to be hoping to compete not only for the playoff, but for a national championship next year. That's their first game. Middle of their schedule. They have Clemson. I believe that game is in South Bend. Last year, Notre Dame, Clemson. I know Trevor Lawrence didn't play. It was DJ Ugalele in that game. It was an instant classic. Can't wait to see those two teams face off again. And Then they end the year with Lincoln, Riley's, USC, Trojans. Two first-year head coaches at their respective programs, Freeman at Notre Dame, Riley at USC. The Trojans, make no mistake about it. Josh and I just spoke about it. The Trojans are going to return to their powerhouse form under Lincoln-Riley, and those are three marquee matchups right there for Notre Dame, that if they go at least 2-1 and one in those three games and win their other nine games on their schedule, that should almost guarantee that even at 11-1, and one, I know this year they just missed the cut, but next year with their strength of schedule drastically improving, that should almost guarantee that Notre Dame next year could be a playoff team under first-year head coach Marcus Freeman. And guess what? I'm rooting for them to get there, and I think after this hire, a lot more people and a lot more college football fans across the country are as well. Well, that does it for this episode. Episode 47 of Serralo Sports Talk is up. It's over. It's out of here. Special thanks to my man, Josh Booty, one of my closest friends in the industry. Always a blast to have him on the show. Make sure to check out that new app him and his brother are working on, Bula, the Social Challenge app, and yes, yours truly, Uh, has been the voice of that app in their commercials. So go check it out, and I'll see you next episode.